Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. What does God look like? If somebody were to come to you today and say, hey, you know, tell me about God. Is there a way I could see God? Well, on the one hand, we would say no, because God is invisible. But on the other hand, we could say, well, actually, yes, you can see God and you can see him through the person of Jesus. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Colossians. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 18, in a message titled, Christ Preeminent. Now, here's Pastor Brian. Today, we're going to look at this great passage in verses 15 through 18, where where Paul just shows ultimately, really, the preeminence of Christ. And, you know, as I think about the text and as I think about the world that we live in, you know, you want to see, God, how would you speak into the current cultural moment through the passage that we are looking at today? And I think that in a, in a very special and powerful way, the Lord will speak into the current moment through this text because this text just reminds us that at the end of the day, when everything is said and done, that Jesus is preeminent, that Jesus is the answer, that he is the solution. And whether human beings ever figure that out or not, thank God it's not left up to us to figure it out. You know, God one day will make that crystal clear when he sends the Lord back. But, but in the meantime, as we think of living in a, a disoriented and a confused society, we can have, first of all, peace ourselves, knowing that Christ is preeminent, knowing that he's sovereign, that he's in control. And that is the message that we have to communicate with the people around us in the world that you know, there, there is an answer to our problems, to our social problems, to the, the racial issues, to the unrest of whatever sort it might be. And so as we look at these verses today, that's my prayer, that God will take this great passage that is really just a, a detailed description of who Jesus is, and he will so magnify the Lord in our hearts to where we can walk away today with peace and with confidence that God is at work. So we're going to focus in on verses 15 through 18. But, but first of all, let me just you know, set the stage with some of the background here. So as was the case in most New Testament period churches, there were regular attempts by the enemy through false teachers to bring in ideas that would be destructive to believers. This is common. We see in all of the New Testament letters, especially Paul's letters, there's encouragement, there's instruction, there's correction, but there's also warning about these various false teachings that were always looking to make their way into the church. So sometimes the apostles would confront these heresies head on and 
At other times, they would indirectly address them by simply magnifying the truth over the error. And and here in Colossians, Paul does both. In chapter 2, he is going to come with a frontal assault on the false teachers and their teaching. And we'll see that when we get into the second chapter where he really drills down and, and kind of, you know, confronts them more personally. But here in chapter one, he's going to use the other approach by taking Christ who the false teachers were degrading and showing that he is supreme over all. Now, the particular form of philosophy that the Colossians were being influenced by taught that Jesus was a spirit being who emanated from God, but was just one of many emanations and not himself God. So that's the background for what Paul's going to do right here. So that was the teaching. Oh yeah, Jesus came from God, but he was just one of many emanations. You see, this philosophy, which would develop fully later into Gnosticism, rejected the idea that man could ever really personally know God or personally connect with God because the reasoning was God is spirit, which is pure, and people are material beings, and material is by its very nature impure. And so there's no way that the pure God could have any direct dealings with impure people. And so Jesus had to be just one of many emanations coming out from God to bring us some information about God, but of course could not be direct connection with God. But what Paul does here is he shows that Jesus, far from being one of many emanations from God, is none other than God himself. So Paul just blows that whole thing out of the water, that Christ is not only not an emanation, one of many, one rung in the ladder of you know man's connecting with God or God connecting with man, but Christ is God himself. And so through that, he, through magnifying Christ, through showing the glory of Christ, he's going to refute the error that was seeking to creep into the church. And so, as I was saying earlier, rather than taking a frontal assault, as he will do in the second chapter, here in the first chapter, he is using this other strategy of, let me just show everyone who Jesus really is, and then that answers all of these false ideas that are floating around at the time. And so I think that is a, is a great way to approach things. It reminds me of what D.L. Moody did back in 1893 when the World Parliament of Religions came to Chicago. Now, now D.L. Moody, for those of you who don't know, the simplest way to understand D.L. Moody is he was the Billy Graham of the 19th century. So just as we would know Billy Graham in the 20th century, we would know how he had this extraordinary evangelistic gift and, and ministry. So Moody was that in a previous generation. And so in 1893, 
the World Parliament of Religions came to Chicago as part of this massive fair that was going on. And millions upon millions of people were going to come through Chicago at that time. And so Moody, being the passionate evangelist that he was, he saw this as an opportunity for the gospel. And so what he did is he commissioned evangelists and he assigned them to preaching posts, various places throughout the city. He used churches. He rented theaters. He even set up a circus tent and used that as a place from which he would preach. And when it was all said and done, thousands upon thousands of people, millions had come to Chicago, but thousands upon thousands had actually received Christ through this vision and this effort that Moody put forth. But here's the point that I want to make. Moody's colleagues advised him as they were planning this, as they were strategizing for what they were going to do. Many of Moody's colleagues wanted him to attack the world parliament of religions. So their method was the frontal assault. They said, you know, all of these false religions are coming into our city. They're coming from all around the world to discuss how we might come up with a, a new religion that would, that would be suited for all people. You know, we tend to think of those ideas as, as pretty recent in history. We think of, well, that just sounds like the new age movement. And yes, it does sound like that, but this was back in 1893. So anyway, the group around Moody, they, they said, this is a great opportunity to basically attack these religions. And so I would imagine in their minds, they would have like, hey, let's do a seminar on why Hinduism is not of God and let's address Islam and let's talk about Buddhism. And you know, they had all these different things. I would imagine that they would have been encouraging Moody. This is the moment to refute these false ideas. But the interesting thing is that Moody refused to do it. And he said this, this would be his strategy. He said, I'm going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that people will want to turn to him. So rather than, than focusing on the false religions, he says, no, we're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to present Christ. Moody learned that from Paul because that's exactly what Paul is doing here in Colossians chapter one. Now, like I said, he's going to get a little more aggressive when we get to the second chapter and deal more specifically with the false teaching and the false teachers. But right here up front, he's laying the groundwork by saying, no, we're going to make Christ so attractive that he's going to be irresistible and, and it will be obvious that we would prefer Christ over these other options. R. Kent Hughes, who wrote a commentary on Colossians he rightly noted, he said this, Moody knew that preaching Christ preeminent, the peerless, supreme, all-sufficient Christ clearly presented would do the job. He knew that would do the job. That is what we need to do. And so I agree that that is the better method. And, you know, people rarely are argued out of their positions. It's not 
too often, although it does happen occasionally, it's not too often that when you take the approach of criticizing a person's position, that you win them over or you persuade them. A lot of times it just entrenches them more deeply in the position that they previously held. I remember when I was, you know, kind of transitioning from the Catholicism that I grew up in to, you know, on the journey to coming to know Christ personally. But I remember whenever I would hear any kind of negative thing about Catholicism, you know what it did for me? It just made me want to fight. It made me dig in my heels and fall back on my Catholic heritage. And, you know, it kind of closed my ears off to hearing the truth because I was so preoccupied with defending my position. And I think that that happens a lot of the time. And so we have to remember we have something so much better than anything else to point people to. We have a person and his name is Jesus and in him all the fullness of God dwells in human form. So this is the the approach that I think in this moment, this is the approach for the most part that we need to take. This is our first approach. Now, it's not to say that we don't at times refute things or show the falsity of positions and all of that. We, we do that, but I think our first approach is to present Christ. So that's what he does. So here in verses 15 through 18, Paul tells us seven things about Christ He told them seven things about Christ that they needed to realize, they needed to remember, they needed to be rooted in these things, and we're going to look at those seven things together now. So let me read the passage again, and then we'll walk through each one of the things he says. So verse 15, he is, speaking of Christ, obviously, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And so Paul talking about this one who redeemed us through his blood and forgave our sins, he goes on and he says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, the word image here, the Greek word is the word that we also get our English word icon from. And this word referred to a, could refer to a portrait. It could refer to a uh, an image that was placed upon a wax seal. It referred to the image that was stamped on a coin. The idea is that it was the identical representation of the object or person represented. That's the idea. Now, the author of the letter to the Hebrews says something almost identical to what Paul is saying here. And let me read that to us from Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the universe, 
who being the brightness of his glory, and here it is, the express image of his person, or another translation is the exact representation of his being and upholding all things by the word of his power. So Christ is the visible manifestation of God. God is invisible. No one has seen God at any time. Paul, in writing to Timothy, he says that God dwells in the light that no man can approach. And it says that no one has seen or can see him. But then in John 1.18, John tells us after beginning his great gospel with that statement about Christ, who was in the beginning with God, he's the word, he was with God, and how the word became flesh and dwelt among us in verse 14. And then in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, or no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. So what does God look like? If somebody were to come to you today and say, hey, you know, tell me about God. How, is there a way I could see God? Well, on the one hand, we would say no, because God is invisible. But on the other hand, we could say, well, actually, yes, you can see God and you can see him through the person of Jesus. Remember how Jesus was with his disciples. And I think it was Philip who at one point he said, Lord, show us the father. If you show us the father, that, that'll be sufficient. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you so long that you haven't recognized me? They that have seen me have seen the Father. So you see, Jesus is the invisible God becomes visible through Jesus. Imagine that, that there was a mirror that God could stand in front of. Now, we couldn't see him standing there because he's invisible. But if there was a reflection in that mirror, you would see Jesus. So that's the idea. Just as a mirror reflects the person in front of it, so Christ is a reflection of God. So when people wonder about God, this is why when people ask me the question, well, what is God like? They say, well, hey, listen, we have got four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that give us a picture of what God is like. And as we take those gospels and as we look at Jesus and as we look at the way he interacted with people and the way he loved and the way he was compassionate and you know all of the things that we see, we're seeing God. So he is the image of the invisible God, Paul says first. And secondly, he says that he is the firstborn over all creation the firstborn over all creation. Now, the King James Version really messed up on this translation. If you're still using that old version, you will know that it says that he is the firstborn of the creation. Now, because it words it that way, the firstborn of creation, that gave the people who don't want to believe that, that Jesus is really the true God, the eternal God, it gave them a little bit of ammunition because they, they would say, see, it says right here, he's the firstborn of the creation. So that means when creation happened, he was the first one to get created. 
But that's not what the text actually says. The text actually says that he is the firstborn over all of creation. He's over creation. And so the word that's translated firstborn, it's used twice in this passage. We'll see it again in the final verse that we're going to look at. But the word, prototokos is the Greek word, if you want to know that. But the word could refer to first in order of time. And it does actually in the second using, I think. But first in the order of time, such as a firstborn child, or it could refer also to one who is preeminent in rank. And I think clearly that's the way Paul is using it here, that Christ is preeminent in rank. Psalm 89, verse 27, it's a, it's a messianic psalm. The Lord says concerning the Messiah, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So you see there, it's clear that firstborn means first in rank, not first in numerical order. One more passage from Jeremiah. I think it's 31 verse 9. There, God refers to Ephraim as his firstborn. All you have to do is look in the genealogies, and you know that Ephraim was not the firstborn. Ephraim wasn't even a direct son of Jacob. He was a son of Joseph. But there, God is talking about the, you know, if you will, the preeminence of Ephraim among the tribes. And so that's what Paul is telling us here, that Christ is supreme. You know, people will use that term, a supreme being. Some, sometimes people will say, well, you know, I believe in a supreme being. Good. Let me tell you about the supreme being. Let me tell you who that is. That is Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn over all creation. And that flows right into the next point. He's the firstborn over all creation. He's actually the one who did the creating. He created everything. Now, sometimes I think we mistakenly think that the creation account in Genesis 1, that's the place where we're told in the Bible that God created everything. People have a really difficult time in those early chapters of Genesis. So they think, oh, well, that, you know, that, that probably is mythological or you know, they tend to sort of uh, dismiss that. But did you know that that's one of dozens of places in the Bible where God declares himself to be the creator? God says it over and over again. We studied recently through the, the prophecy of Isaiah. And if you were with us, we saw in those chapters, especially you know, chapter 40 through 50, we saw how God declares over and over again, I am the Lord. I created the heavens. I created the earth. I created human beings. I put their spirit within them. I breathed on them. Over and over, God says this. But when we get to the New Testament, interestingly, what's clarified in the New Testament is that the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he's actually the, he's the, specifically the creator. And that's what Paul tells us here. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So think about that for a moment. The invisible realm. So there is an invisible realm. There is a whole world that we can't access or see from where we are.
For the month of April, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, How the Gospel is Good News for Our Physical Selves by Sam Albury. We live in a body that is subject to age, accidents, and ailments. Entire industries are built around the age of our body, the accidents we may face, and the ailments we eventually face through time and circumstance. So is there a purpose in the bodily brokenness we are either facing or will face in the future? Is physical death the temporal climax of our bodily existence? Or is the body just a shell from which we are to ultimately escape? If you've ever wrestled with any of these questions, or you know someone who wants to know more about the ultimate purpose of the body, you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, How the Gospel is Good News for Our Physical Selves by Sam Albury, is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Colossians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.